Hello, welcome to the Dear Writer podcast. I'm Sarah. And I'm Ashley. We're two aspiring collaborative authors sharing our writing journey with you. The ups, the downs, and everything in between. Whether you're just starting out or a more experienced writer, we hope that you'll find this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. And here's the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to Dear Writer. Uh, Today we have another one of our Talking Shop episodes and like previously uh, we tend to chat a lot during these (laughs) so we will jump straight into it I think. Um, Sarah, what's your tool of the month this month? So this month I read a book by the name of Creativity, A Short and Cheerful Guide um, which is written by John Cleese. Was it short and cheerful? (laughs) (laughs) It was short and cheerful. It's a very succinct book with tips about creativity and writing. And to give you an idea of the subject matter, um, there are three main chapters, which starts with the creative mindset and talks about discovering creativity and letting ideas naturally develop. And then it moves on to the second chapter, which is called hair brain tortoise mind after a <laughs> yes after a, a book that he read that John Cleese read from Guy Claxton which is titled hair brain tortoise mind and the idea behind it because I feel like I have to explain this a bit. Yeah, probably yes <laughs> I was gonna say, what is, it even? is it like hair is in like the animal yes like h-a-r-e yeah. Not as in like the hair on your head. I realized I was like making rabbit motions, but then no one could see it. <laughs> Everyone can just get this image of Ashley like bouncing up and down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, to explain a little bit about it. So he kind of talks about how there's several different types of thinking and he kind of likens the logical, quick and purposeful way of thinking as the hair brain, which involves figuring matters out, weighing up pros and cons, constructing arguments and solving problems. And meanwhile, the meandering part of your thinking and your mind is termed tortoise mind and is described as proceeding more slowly. And it is often less purposeful and clear cut, more playful, leisurely or dreamy. And in this mode, we are ruminating or mulling things over being contemplative or meditative. We may be pondering a problem rather than earnestly trying to solve it. When I see this picture, I kind of get the image of, so I don't know if anyone's, like I know they're kind of typical to UK and New Zealand, but I don't know if anyone's had like the Bernina sewing machines ever before. Yes. (laughs) I'm not sure my singer has the same image on it. And probably not, I would assume. But it used to have like a... um, And, you know, like a lot of things have this where it'll have like slow speed, it'll be like a turtle and then like fast speed and it'll be like a hare or like a rabbit. (laughs) So that's what I thought of when I was like, hair brain tortoise mind. Oh, I get it now. Like, you know, fast thinking, quick thinking, slow. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, aha, just the image that ran through my mind because my mom had a Bernina sewing machine. Anyways, moving on, moving on from sewing machines. So John Cleese then goes on to discuss why both sides are needed when writing. And I have often heard the same thought voiced more as putting on a writer's hat versus an editor's hat. That's kind of typically how I 
hear the same kind of thought viewed in relation to writing. I mean, you do use both sides when doing every part of writing and including like drafting and editing. But I do think, and I think John Cleese sort of explained that in the drafting phase, then you're more likely to use the tortoise mind while the harebrain kind of prevails more in the editing part to help work out plot inconsistencies and edit out errors so that it becomes a better constructed quality piece of writing. So that's kind of how, what I took from that section. Um, you might take something completely different. Harebrain is just such a funny word. It is. Every time I, you say it, I'm like, <laughs> I think it's also because we don't have hares in New Zealand, really. <laughs> you just have rabbits, an overabundance of rabbits. Yeah, a lot of rabbits. <laughs> so, like, to hear the word hare, you're just like, huh, that's so strange. Yeah, I know. I know, it's weird. We don't have squirrels either in New Zealand. It took a while getting used to these types of wildlife in Canada. <laughs> but I was thinking rabbit brain doesn't have the same effect, though. No, <laughs> it doesn't. I just imagine being like hoppy. Yeah. <laughs> Doink. Hopping from one thought to another. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't quite work the same. <laughs> Anyways, so then the next section was titled Hints and Suggestions, and he divided that into a bunch of usable tips and sort of subsections uh, that talked about everything from the early stages of inspiration to the end stages of receiving feedback from others. And I won't go into detail with these, but considering I've been having a few issues lately with productivity, um, I drew a quote from his subheading, coping with setbacks seemed appropriate. <laughs> and that described a different view on coping with writer's block. So he said, we came to understand that the blockages weren't an interruption in the process. They were a part of the process. For example, when you eat, the bit where the fork returns empty to your plate isn't a failure. It's just part of the eating process. I like that. That is an interesting analogy. I like it. Yeah. It kind of makes sense. Like you have to return to the well at some point to get inspiration again. And you're not going to have it flow seamlessly all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, that said, I feel like I have been on a rather stagnant phase, but you know, oh, well. it does happen from time to time. It does. And yeah, so my overall thoughts on the book, I do think it's definitely worth a read as it's so short that you can finish it in just a few sessions. There were a couple of things I didn't like too much about it. And I feel like this with some nonfiction. So I don't know whether it's a nonfiction-y side that kind of gets me or the fact that it was really short, probably that it was really short, I'm thinking. But I felt like at times it was almost a little bit too simplistic. Yeah, I, I don't know. Sometimes even when things are put in like, a concise and really clear way with speech and stuff like I it almost feels like it's been dumbed down too much if you know what I mean right yeah, yeah. like I don't think it was purposefully like dumbed down or anything and I don't think like I'm not so obnoxious that I think oh you know this is way below me <laughs> but it just it's the, the style of writing I think that sometimes mm. I'm I just doesn't 
100% gel with me, but then I did get a lot from it despite that. And going back and looking at it before sort of writing the notes for this podcast, I was like, actually, it was probably more worthwhile reading it than what I initially thought. So mm -hmm. my opinion of it has improved over time. <laughs> it's matured in your mind. Yeah. So that, again, was Creativity, A Short and Cheerful Guide by John Cleese. So can have a look for it if you enjoyed this review. Sounds like a nice fast read, which I'm all for. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. You know, like some of the sort of subheadings in that third chapter was only like a couple of pages. And this is saying something when you're reading on an iPhone. So they were fairly short. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I think it is worthwhile having a look at. So what was your tool of the month, Ashley? Well, this month, I a bit of a backstory to it. I feel like there's always backstory with mine. Anyway, <laughs> my chapter that I'm writing has required quite a lot of research. So I spent a lot of my time over the past few weeks doing mostly about the structure of the Boshan army, which took a surprisingly long time to figure out and what happens when you like want to go to war and things like that. So it kind of got me thinking again about writing historical fiction and trying to figure out what's important to have in there in terms of research and how you represent the story that you're writing and what's okay to make up, basically. So I ended up finding a really interesting article called A True Story, Defining Accuracy and Authenticity in Historical Fiction. It's by Laura Saxton in the journal Rethinking History. It's a nice recent one to gain 2020. Um, Can I just comment that like the name Saxon just feels very historical? It does, doesn't it? It's because, you know, you're used to like Saxon, like the yeah. Saxons. Oh, like the, yes. I was like, why am I feeling that? Oh yeah, this is why. But that's an interesting name for. Name made for history. Yeah. <laughs> for historical thinking. Sorry. No, it's fine. So <laughs> yes, in the journal Rethinking History from 2020, I guess it's page 127 if you are interested. And this whole uh, paper was talking about how people perceive historical fiction and the difference between the terms accuracy and authenticity, which she begins by saying are used interchangeably usually, she finds. Um, and her whole paper is to argue that they should be treated separately, um, not as the same thing because they are technically distinct. So I'll just quickly define what she means by it so that we can all be on the same page. So when she says accuracy, she means the extent the text is consistent with available evidence. And by authenticity, she means the, an impression of accuracy and the extent that the reader believes that the text represents the past. So you can have books that are authentic but not accurate and right. the reverse they're accurate but they don't feel real so basically she's this whole paper is trying to argue that you're actually aiming for the authenticity part not necessarily like 100% accuracy mm -hmm. and that's how people should view historical fiction just side note I've just noticed that amusingly I have shortened historical fiction to hf in my notes and all i could keep seeing is hydrogen fluoride so 
<laughs> I keep seeing it and then being like, HF, like the acid no of historical fiction. Why have I done this to myself? <laughs> Anyways, back to this sort of overview. So she begins by talking about accuracy and how in the past, well, all the time actually, um, authors and even filmmakers are always asked to address the accuracy of their books or their movies, usually directly in interviews, um, but also through things like the author's note in the historical, in your novel, in a bibliography that people often attach in their historical fiction novels and PR interviews and things that people are always asking. You know, you have to say what you've made up and what's based on fact. And a lot of critics generally regard this accuracy as a marker of how good the book is, like how true are they to what happened and that kind of by extension, according to Saxton, suggests that there's a bit of unease at mixing fact and fiction together if you have to, you know, lay out exactly what is the fictive element. Mm-hmm. I thought that was, I was like, that's true. Because I thought back to a lot of the historical fiction books that I've read and read. And a lot of them do have the author's note where they're like, yeah, these events are real. Yeah, a disclaimer in it. Yeah, but I've made up these parts. And I do often find myself occasionally, I'd be like, is this real? Or have they just like made this up and, you know, going in and checking (laughs) whether it's real or not? So I was like, I guess I've fallen into that trap a little bit myself as well as a reader. Anyway, so she, after talking about, you know, how people view historical fiction. She then goes on to say that uh, we really should be trying to separate these two terms, accuracy and authenticity. And she says that's really important because that we separate them because there are, well, novels that are authentic are basically acknowledging that there are gaps in historical knowledge, which there is. So like, as we've learned from researching our ancient Greece book, like there are a lot of gaps in there that, Mm -hmm. you know, historians just don't know what happened. And that's usually where historical fiction novels come in. Like they try and bridge the gap. So it's not like the knowledge is already there and they're twisting facts. It's that the knowledge is actually absent and they're kind of um, filling them in, which I thought was quite an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, when you think about that, in some ways, historical fiction is probably quite pivotal in creating an image. Like when you think about how important stories are to society and like passing down like the stories of history, in some ways, historical fiction is quite important in creating a storyline and joining it together so that people can actually imagine what happened rather than like these facts that no one remembers because they're all disjointed, right? <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. Because a lot of the what we have, like on the historical record, there are fragments and you have to, you do have to weave them together anyways. So it's definitely, I, I agree. So we're talking about how historical fiction fills in the gaps. And in actuality, if the novel's written well, there is, no way to compare what the author has used to fill in the gaps with fact because there is no fact in the first place and she uses the example of if you're writing and Sarah and I have experienced this if you're writing from the perspective of a historical person you have to imagine their thoughts and their motives and their emotions and all the small details of their lives because usually all of this is lost 
in history. Obviously, some really, you know, important, prominent figures. There's a lot written about them, so it's a bit easier. But sometimes, as we've had with our characters, there's not a lot there. So you have to kind of make up or from, you know, tease out details from what you're given um, as to what this person may or may not have been like. And mm-hmm. there's no way to say that you're right or wrong because it's just how you've interpreted like what's been given to you. Well, it's a bit like, you know, the story of King Henry VIII, which is like a really well-known story, but then you read like some stuff of it and it's like paints him as this incredibly evil man who just wanted to get rid of all his wives. <laughs> <laughs> and then I remember watching the Tudors series like for the first time and thinking, like that it created a much more believable uh, narrative because it kind of painted it how like he slowly his thoughts like slowly deteriorated and like he you know he started off with really good intentions and then it just kind of wound it up snowballing <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I was like oh now I can conceivably see how this could happen whereas before it was just like he you know, killed this many wives and these ones survived and whatever. <laughs> so I thought that was, that is quite an interesting point as well. Is that depends on how the story is told. Yeah. And you only have, you only have other people's accounts left of these people, right? Or even if you have letters from them, then you have their own biased opinion of themselves, like available to you. Mm. So it's kind of hard unless you were. Or in letters, may not be accurate to what their thoughts might actually be portraying. Like, I don't know if you've done this writing diaries, but I think I've mentioned this before when we were talking about, um, there was one culture and creativity episode where we talked about diaries and how I said that I only, like, I stopped writing diaries because I started writing only the happy stuff down. Cause I was like, I don't want to read that mm-hmm. other stuff. But so <laughs> if anyone were to pick up my diary, like in the future and be like, ah, oh, this is what, life was like in the um you know early 2000s or what whenever it was that I was writing these diaries it'd be like well that's not entirely accurate nothing bad ever happened (laughs) yeah Sarah was a very 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 happy person yeah so even people can create inaccurate representations of themselves so can't believe Believe everything you read even when it's written by the person Well, probably even less so when it's written by the written by them, or especially letters, because you don't know what they're putting on. <laughs> well, they're not. People aren't always honest with themselves too about their actual motives. <laughs> so. Exactly. It's been a very interesting piece that I've been reading. So, anyways, I'll continue on. So, when you assess the, she calls it truth, <laughs> in historical fiction, it does, or readers when they're reading it, it does extend beyond just simple facts as in dates and events being correct it's kind of like those are like the given and you also obviously have to get the background setting like almost perfect like so believable um, which is what Sarah and I have done a lot of research to do so these are you know things like their dress and their customs and their speech and everything like that so that's incredibly important to make it feel really authentic there was a really good quote that they had in authentic historical fiction the quote snap and tang of the past are communicated effectively (laughs) snap and tang and And it (laughs) quote captures the spirit of an era rather than its accuracy 
which I also liked. Mm -hmm. And that's why they say that a lot of, you know, for example, like period novels written in certain periods of time use a lot of cliches and fancy speech. That's because authors in the past have been criticized for not using those cliches and fancy speech and therefore the reader's don't feel like it's accurate anymore even though we actually have no idea how people spoke back then because all we have is letters and people write very different to how they speak and always we write different to how we speak so that's I thought that was quite interesting like people put on voices which readers associate with a certain time period but no one really knows what you know that speech would have actually sounded like this is true Um, so if we're worried about our book occasionally having Victorian sounding speech in it. Well, is it truly Victorian in the first place? <laughs> exactly. No one knows. It's not like they had speech, uh, tape recorders, speech recorders, tape recorders. They, uh, so she actually uses the crown as an example of classic historical fiction, following all of pretty much all of the classic ways that people um, portray it. I haven't actually watched the crown because that's not really my kind of not really interested in that but I thought I'd go through what she says about it anyways people might find it interesting so she says the crown is very very adept at using period detail and in their marketing they mix in archival footage that's real to suggest that it you know that they're really giving an accurate description of unrecorded private encounters which I thought was quite interesting Mm-hmm. And apparently they've done this obviously very well because they tracked the Wikipedia page hits like for when episodes were released and seasons were released. And I think it was before, you know, when The Crown is not released, the relevant Wikipedia pages were averaging like 800,000 views a month. And then they spiked to almost 5 million when episodes of The Crown dropped. Wow. <laughs> so obviously people are like, oh, is this real? Is it not? <laughs> But it does show that, I guess, readers of historical fiction, I guess, kind of know that not everything is going to be true. And they're kind of like, oh, what is true? What isn't true? I do that occasionally as well. Yeah. I think that's and what I fi- like about historical fiction, though, is that because you're not sure whether something's true or not, then you look it up and then you discover all these interesting facts along the way. So it's like, you know, reading a fun book, but then also broadening your your knowledge about whatever. You get to learn some interesting facts along the way. Yes. As a final point, I thought I would just talk about the comparison between historians and historical fiction writers, which she goes into in quite a lot of detail, and I found very interesting. Mm -hmm. So she says, the past as it once existed is inaccessible. And I was like, fair, because... (laughs) but we don't know everything about it. Historians select facts. I'm doing an air quote, select facts and weave them together to create an accepted version of history. And consequently, to an extent, historical uh, historical research is actually subjective, which it, I guess it is like when you think about it, mm-hmm. that kind of aspect and uses a lot of different chains of interpretation to make the accepted historical record. And when you compare that to historical fiction writers, it is incredibly similar. They use, you know, facts and then weave them together into their uh, narratives as well. So it kind of, 
it's a very similar process for both of these, except obviously one is making the accepted historical record and the other is making a novel. But it's a similar process, which I found quite interesting thinking about it that way. Yeah. And she says, and basically in closing, that if we only look at the accuracy of sticking to the hard facts, we neglect all the interpretive work that historical fiction writers do as well. So I liked that. I, was, I like to think I'm being interpretive <laughs> when we're doing all of our research. I think it's interesting how many things as well is sort of touted as sort of common knowledge or an accurate sort of fact when it may not actually be the case. Like when I was doing some research for the beginning of our book, there's, you know, I was researching some artifacts that is in this museum and I came across one of them that the discoverer of the artifact may have possibly done a bit of extra restorative work on (laughs) and to make it more attractive to like to tourists and things oh and so in a a sense he was making history but he was trying to claim (laughs) he was trying to claim that it was like from like a famous sort of legendary character but I mean it was proven later that it wasn't however it still was unclear like whether (laughs) how much extra restorative work he did on this piece (laughs) so So, you know, even when you have like a solid artifact, it's like if it's had a degree of restoration done to it, like restorative work, I guess, is similar in some ways to filling in the gaps of what would this have looked like prior to it being in this state. So some things that you see in like museums and stuff is not like necessarily 100% accurate to what they originally looked like. And so I thought that was interesting too. Yeah, no, that kind of fits in with the broader <laughs> point that like we really don't actually know what it was really like back then. So yeah, hopefully you found that interesting. If you want to, if you do want to check it out and read it for yourself, it was called A True Story, Defining Accuracy and Authenticity in Historical Fiction. So hopefully you got something, or at least, you know, interesting things to think about from that, especially for any other historical fiction writers out there who struggle with the research and whatnot. So we should probably move on to what we are reading this month. Sarah, did you want to share? Sure. So sort of carrying on the historical fiction theme for something a bit different earlier in this month, I read a historical fiction book. It's called Ashes in the Snow by Ruth, I can't say the last name, (laughs) Sipatis. Ruth Sepatis. I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Ruth. (laughs) Totally screwing that up, I'm sure. But it was originally published under the title of Between the Shades of Grey, and I think it might have been retitled potentially when it became, because it's now a film. However, the film didn't do marvellously. I imagine it was retitled because, you know, Between Shades of Grey sounds also quite similar to um, 50 Shades of Grey so they probably didn't want that connotation with no. <laughs> that, as you'll that soon see sense. the type of story that it is which is totally different it's classified as a young adult book but I feel really it's a fairly mature book and I wouldn't confine it to just young adult readers though the protagonist is a teenager 
Um, it's a book that describes the experience of a 15-year-old Lithuanian girl during World War II. Very read... different to Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> <laughs> yes, rather. I'll just read the, um, the blurb to you guys. So 15-year-old Lena is a Lithuanian girl living an ordinary life until Soviet officers invade her home and tear her family apart. Separated from her father and forced onto a crowded train, Lena, her mother, and her young brother make their way to a Siberian work camp where they are forced to fight for their lives. Lena finds solace in her art, documenting these events by drawing. Risking everything, she embeds clues in her drawings of their location and secretly passes them along, hoping her drawings will make their way to her father's prison camp. But will strength, love, and hope be enough for Lena and her family to survive? But yeah, so it was quite interesting to read a book that's not like solely about Germany in World War II or um, Jews in World War II. And I think they, they mentioned that like some of the um, sort of Eastern European countries, they their voices were kind of drowned out a bit by everything that happened and because they ended up sort of being occupied by Stalin and things they went through like a, a lot during that time period but it's not super well documented because it did like the communism and stuff continued for quite a period after as well and I found it quite interesting especially because my ancestors are from a part of Finland that is what was now a part of Russia during the sort of Finnish independence wars and so because Finland went through a very similar um, invasion as well. And so I did find it quite interesting from that viewpoint to read. It is entire like the characters in it um, are fictional, but she did a lot of background research um, as to people's experiences and things of being on these trains and being taken to prison camps and um, work camps and things. So... Hmm, it sounds interesting. It's very interesting. I really enjoyed it. And afterwards, yeah, I went to try and look at the film because I was like, oh, maybe I'll enjoy it. And then it had really terrible ratings and was like, if you enjoyed the book, do not watch. And I was like, (laughs) okay, I might actually listen to the critics for this one. Yeah. (laughs) I don't mean when you read something really great and then watch the movie like I did with the Ready Player One, I was like, oh, the book's so good. And then everyone was like, don't watch the movie if you enjoyed the book. And then I watched the movie and I was like, hmm, this was a mistake. <laughs> so I totally get that. But yeah, so that's my book for the month of what I've been reading fiction-wise. How about you, Ashley? I I branched out this month. So my usual genres are historical fiction or YA, or I do like a good sort of murder mystery slash thriller kind of book. But this month I went for a spy thriller. I don't usually read those kind of books, uh, but I had a whole bunch of, I don't know how to say his name properly. I'm going to go with John Le Carre, maybe John Le Carre. Anyways, I, had a whole, I have a whole bunch of his books on my shelf and I was like, I'm going to dive in. I'm going to try one for the first time. So I was feeling lockdown made me feel like, you know, trying to do something different. And by that, I read a different genre. So I I started reading The Tailor of Panama. So I'll just go over the blurb, which is, he is Harry Pendle, exclusive tailor to Panama's most powerful men. 
informant to British intelligence, the perfect spy in a country rife with corruption and revolution. What his handlers don't realize is that Harry has a hidden agenda of his own. Deceiving his friends, his wife, and practically himself, he'll weave a plot so fabulous it exceeds his own vivid imagination. But when events start to spin out of control, Harry is suddenly in over his head, thrown into a lethal maze of politics and espionage with unthinkable consequences. Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Um, I'm about a quarter of the way through it, so I'm going to go with like, to mm, almost 200 pages it's quite long and I've been enjoying it a lot so far there's already been quite a couple good twists that I was not expecting so that's been good because I'm like what excellent and John Le Carre also has quite a unique writing style so it took me it is written in the present tense mm. but it's also very it's quite a descriptive style as well so it took me like a couple chapters to get used to it, but I'm used to it now. So I'm flying through it a lot quicker now. So I have been enjoying it quite a lot. I'm very intrigued to see uh, where this is going to go. It's one of those books where I'm like, I have no idea where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's always good. Yeah. Well, all I know is that he's, you know, providing information to the the British intelligence people which is but I'm like what are they what's going on like what is the information for I don't know (laughs) and learning a lot about Pendle's very suspicious and dodgy past which he's been covering up from everyone so that's been quite good so yeah I've been enjoying it it's been a nice change from what I've usually reading Mm -hmm. sounds very interesting anyways I assume we should probably wrap this up because we're probably done for time already yeah Um, So there are still some spots left on our author spotlight section. And if you would like to apply to that, then head over to our website at lindersoncreations.com. Hover your mouse over the podcast tab in the main menu and you'll see a drop down that'll bring you to a page to be featured on Dear Writer. And next time on Dear Writer, it's our main podcast. And we're going to be talking about firsts. So like the first sentence first paragraph, first chapter, and a whole bunch of other things like that. So that should be quite interesting. I think it'll be a good a good chat. Also, if you'd like to know any more about us and our writing projects, you can visit us also at the aforementioned website, lindersoncreations.com, or you can get in touch with us on Facebook or Instagram, which is under the handle Lindison Creations. And if you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. Um, tell your friends about us and we'll be back next week so happy writing everyone